This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 229th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and on today's episode we are remembering and celebrating a great star of Hollywood's golden age, a gay icon, and a wonderful man who I had the privilege of getting to personally know and love over the last few years, Tab Hunter. Tab died on Monday just three days shy of his 87th birthday, but after a long life, very well lived. He broke into the movies in the early 50s. He, James Dean, and Natalie Wood were the last three actors put under contract by Warner Brothers during the waning days of the studio system, and he quickly made a name for himself. He starred in films like 1955's Battle Cry and 1958's Damn Yankees, and from 1955 to 1959, he was Warner's top-grossing star. He recorded a song, Young Love, that in 1957 knocked Elvis Presley off the top of the Billboard charts and remained there for six weeks, going gold and prompting Jack Warner to form Warner Brothers Records. And he was on the cover of every major fan magazine, referenced in some as, quote-unquote, the Psy Guy, because of his breathtakingly good looks and all-American appeal. But, unbeknownst to the public, which saw Tab paired on and off-screen with female movie stars, he actually was a gay man who was unable to be open about his sexuality and was constantly under the threat of having his career destroyed because of it. In the late 50s, he bought out his Warner Brothers contract, thinking his professional opportunities would be better if he freelanced. But they weren't, and he largely faded from the public eye. In the 80s, he experienced a strange career revival of sorts when the eccentric indie filmmaker John Waters cast him in a couple of projects opposite the transvestite performer Divine, films which have since become cult classics. But mostly, Tab lived out the rest of his life quietly and happily, spending the last 35 years of it with his beloved personal and professional partner, the producer, Alan Glasser, and his horses. I first met Tab and Alan at an event hosted by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association in 2013, where Tab presented a grant on behalf of the HFPA and then was sworn by current stars like Nicole Kidman. That day, I asked to interview Tab at some point, and Alan took down my information. Alan gave me that opportunity two years later, when a terrific documentary about Tab called Tab Hunter Confidential which was produced by Alan and adapted from a 2005 memoir of the same name that Tab wrote with Eddie Muller, was about to premiere at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Tab and Alan came by my office at The Hollywood Reporter on March 10, 2015, and we recorded an in-depth interview that we will play for you shortly. It was the beginning of a beautiful friendship that led me to moderate Q&As with Tab and Alan everywhere from the Savannah Film Festival to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and to get to spend time with them socially as well, in L.A. and in Santa Barbara, where they lived. It was a privilege to get to see up close what a truly lovely guy Tab was, and Alan is, and my thoughts are with Alan during this difficult time. 
Just last month, my THR colleague Boris Kitt and I broke the news that the story of Tab's secret love affair in the 50s with Anthony Perkins, the actor who would go on to play Norman Bates in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, is being turned into a major motion picture. With J.J. Abrams, Zachary Quinto, Neil Konigsberg, and Allen set to produce, and Paramount set to distribute. It's sad that Tab won't be around to see the film, but it's nice to know that a new generation of people will discover who he was because of it. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by our books editor, Andy Lewis, a man who is not only well-read, but also a huge collector. If you were to walk by his desk in our newsroom, you'll see a lot of Legos and all kinds of other memorabilia. He is a fun and interesting guy, and so I really appreciate him taking a few minutes to join me to preview the books of summer, some great reads that you might want to take with you to the beach or on vacation or whatever you're doing over the next few months. Andy, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Scott. Sure. So it seems like, in a way, we can kind of group the really important reads of this summer in a few different pairings. I guess let's start with biographies. The first one I want to ask you about is one that we've just run an excerpt of online on the Hollywood Reporter website, THR.com. It is called King of Content. It's a biography of Sumner Redstone by Keech Hagee. I guess maybe you can tell us a little bit about both who Sumner and Keech are and also how the book is. The book is great. And Keech Hagee is a Wall Street Journal reporter who's been covering CBS and Viacom for a number of years. So she's really deeply enmeshed in this, the fight and, and now has gone back and looked at the history of Sumner. And Sumner has a really interesting history. He grew up in Boston. He went to Harvard Law School. He took over his dad's theater chain and turned it into a conglomerate, ending up buying both CBS and Viacom. So she really goes back and tells the story of Sumner. And in a lot of ways, it helps get us to the point where where we are now, where where Sherry Redstone, his daughter, and Les Moonves are fighting over the future of the company. And I thought it was one of the best business bios I've read in a long time. Wow. And, and it's interesting because Sumner is still with us, but he's pretty out, pretty up there, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're really, they're really fighting over the legacy of of Sumner. And you know, on the one hand, it's full of great details about how ruthless Sumner was, not just to his rivals, but to his own family, and in manipulating trust to gain control over the company and using his children and grandchildren's interest in the company under his discretion, you know, to further it. And also gives us a sense of how he sort of dreamed about creating this kind of conglomerate. But in a lot of ways, part of what the book shows us is how he was obsessed with immortality and didn't really plan, as a lot of great leaders don't, don't plan for their succession. And so they sort of create this mess. Interesting. Well, the other bio I want to ask you about is about someone who is no longer with us, tragically, and that is Robin Williams. The book is called Robin, and it's by another guy associated with a print publication you might have heard of, the New York Times, Dave Itzkoff, who I know has done books about, I think his most recent one was Mad as Hell about Network and was pretty good. Yeah. But tell us about Robin. This is great. You know, Itzkoff was a fan of Robin Williams. And so this is a loving but not airbrushed look at Williams. And it breaks your heart in a lot of ways because Williams is so great, so creative, and yet so sort of unhappy and unsatisfied that it's really a sad book in a lot of ways. I think that it, you know, Itzkoff did a ton of interviews, Billy Crystal, David Letterman, plus like Williams' first mime partner and his high school wrestling coach's daughter. So did he get Williams himself at all before he died? Didn't get Williams. He started to do this after he died. So he didn't get Williams, but he got family members. So 
This, I think, will go down as the definitive biography of Williams. And there's just a ton of great, you know, detail about his rise and about his insecurity. You know, he was deeply worried about Jim Carrey supplanting him, which we don't always wow. think of them as being in competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was, it's great. You know, I think part of the challenge of this book is that Williams is a really hard guy to get to know. Letterman called him a guy within a guy. Mm -hmm. And I think Itzkoff struggles with that a little bit, trying to, to really get us inside of what makes Williams tick. And I'm not sure there's a good answer for that. But, but it's also not a glossy, fawning portrait, right? There are some sides of Williams that come out that are not all that flattering. No, that, that's right. And there's, you know, there's a lot of sexual harassment on the Mork. And Mindy said that wouldn't be tolerated now that he talks about. And like I said, he talks about Williams, shall we say charitably, borrowing other comics lines early in his his career and, and some other stand-ups getting angry you know, about that. And Williams saying it had j just to do with this sort of fast stream of consciousness you know, process and wasn't sort of intentional. So it is a warts and all look at, at Williams, but I think ultimately it's a pretty loving look. You know, mm -hmm. Itzkoff is a fan and is clearly likes his subject. And so even the rough edges are presented with some empathy. Well, our next grouping is going to pertain to the business side of this industry. And I think it's interesting that there's one that looks at where we've come from about 50 years ago, exactly 50 years ago. There's one that sort of looks at where we are now, and there's one that sort of looks at where we're going. So let's start with the one that looks backwards a little bit, and that is called Space Odyssey. Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the making of a masterpiece. That masterpiece, of course, is 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and the book is by Michael Benson. This is a bestseller already. Why is it worth our time? It's the 50th anniversary of the release of the movie, that alone is almost worth it. But this is a great look back on, you know, how the movie was made. And in some ways, it's very familiar. They were filming even as they were fixing the script, which is something we hear about all the time. And in another way, it's very different in this pre-digital era, like how they did, you know, all the special effects and how Kubrick spent two years working on just the eight men costumes or how in order to get the sort of some of the trippy special effects, they put ink and paint thinner and <laughs> filmed it that way, and that creates some of the, the, the galactic collages and stuff like that you wow. see on the on the film. And I think it's it's really great, but the room Kubrick had to make that film and to experiment and to burn money is something that is really sort of interesting. And just necessity is the mother of invention, mm -hmm. I think is one of the things we get out of that. You know, without digital special effects, they really had to figure out how they're going to, you know, do all these things by hand. And that's a great look back at, you know, the business. Well, I know a lot of credit for that, I would say did, but maybe should go to Douglas Trumbull, who's still around. I know yeah. Cara Delay is still around. Is there anyone else who's, kind, did these guys participate? Yeah, they, they did. They did. And one of the great things about this book is, you know, Kubrick has always come across as a very remote figure. And this book really humanizes him. It doesn't make him nice. He's a pretty tough guy to work for, but it humanizes him and gives him a more well-rounded portrait. So we don't just see him as this kind of remote, aloof, cerebral filmmaker, but as a real person who really engaged the crew and worked with them and tried to bring the best out of them and, and let them do their 
their best work. I, I had new respect for Kubrick as a as a filmmaker, as a collaborative filmmaker wow. from this. Well, speaking of collaborative filmmakers, this brings us to the book that is about the business today. And it's an unusual book, I think, for somebody to write at this early, relatively early stage of a career. But nevertheless, this one is called Like Brothers, and it's by the brothers Mark and Jay Duplass, who have really made their name in micro-budget type movies and have sort of been at the vanguard of people who worked with streaming services and all of that and have a cult following, but probably haven't had that many others sort of studying their process in a deep way yet. So here they beat us to the chase. They have written a book about their work and their work together, right? Yeah, and it, you're right. It's really a mid-career book. They're, I think, 41 and 45, the brothers. So they have a lot of filmmaking in front of them. But one of the things that I liked about this, and I think people who are either filmmakers or interested in being filmmakers will learn. I mean, they reproduce, for instance, script pages with their notes scribbled on it. You really get a sense of how they communicate and, and their emails to each other about the process. And like collaborators can be, they're pretty harsh with each other sometimes in an effort to get it better. And I think that that's really illuminating. But also when they did Puffy House, which came at the 2005 Sundance Film Festival. They got a ton of offers for it. And they ended up after a long time signing with Netflix, which was a little ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. And now they've just recently signed a four picture deal with Netflix. So in a lot of ways, they've been ahead of the curve on streaming and other things. And so there's a lot to learn here about the business, where we are right now, mm -hmm. and the kind of moves that they you know, made to get to where they are. And, and also they're frank about how when then after their sort of first micro-budget movies came out and they were given more money, they made a kind of rocky, like, rip-off that didn't do very well. And, and they're honest about how money kind of corrupted them a little bit or that more money didn't necessarily make them better filmmakers. So I think there's a really interesting lesson in there. Yeah, and for people who don't know the Duplass Brothers films, they may be familiar with their HBO anthology series Room 104 which has been very well received over two seasons. The third of the three business books, though, that I want to ask you about is, again, the forward-looking one, and that is Ben Fritz of the Wall Street Journal's new book called The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. Can you talk about what Ben Fritz's thesis is here as uh, he looks ahead to a post-movie star kind of uncertain future? Yeah, well, you know, he's really looking and seeing how the business has become even more franchise-driven, universe-driven. And when he talks about a sort of post-movie star future, he's really thinking that it's going to resemble Marvel more and more across the industry and consolidate into ever bigger kind of conglomerates. And so he has a great chapter in the book about the decline of the careers of Adam Sandler and Will Smith as a, as a perfect embodiment of this, in which the two of them were really movie stars in the old-fashioned sense of the word in which people went to the movie because it was a Sandler movie or it was a Will Smith movie. And both of their box offices and careers have sort of declined and become less interesting to, you know, studios. And Fritz says that that typifies what's going on in the business. It's it's great. We did an excerpt of that in The Hollywood Report. It's really interesting. It was interesting. And also the fact that a number of these guys who, well, I guess a studio that as much as any studio bet on certain movie stars for a long time, including those two, was Sony. And Sony has taken some major hits over the last few years as movie stars become less of a draw. And also, just it was very interesting, I know there was a reference in there to the Bond franchise, which Sony has been associated with for a while, where they 
spent a fortune to have the rights to distribute it, but actually were barely breaking even on it because of the the terms that studios now face on on hot properties like that. Yeah, that's right. The unraveling of Sony is one of the center parts of his his book and does show if you don't have a couple of universes to really rely on what can what can happen. And, you know, Sony tried with Ghostbusters and didn't really take off. But yeah, Sony has sort of unraveled and that is a, a focus of the book and their financial troubles have been part of it. You know, one of the things I think what's great about this book is it's a great primer for people who aren't in the business to really want to get a sense of where we are right now. And especially as we're talking about, you know, what's going to happen to Fox, will Comcast get it or Disney? And then as we were saying, what will happen with CBS and Viacom? If you want to get a sense of where those deals are maybe going to go and how we really arrive there, and why there's such a fight for content and intellectual property. Uh, that's that's exactly right. This is a great introduction, you know, to all all of those. If you're a person interested in the business or you deal with the movie and TV business in your work somehow but you don't know a ton about it, this is really, you know, the book to read to just yeah. get a handle on where we are, you know, right now in one place. Yeah. Catch up. At the moment, of course, we're still feeling across Hollywood the reverberations of the whole Me Too movement that was sparked by Harvey Weinstein's exposure for serial sexual misconduct. It's interesting because while Weinstein's downfall has sort of changed the the way a lot of us think about and deal with this kind of problematic behavior, it's not that it started with Harvey Weinstein or that he was a sole practitioner of it for many years. In fact, it's been going on in one form or another for a long time. And one of the more interesting chronicles of it, I think, is Nell Scovel's new book called Just the Funny Parts. Maybe you can just tell a little bit about who Nell is and and what her book here is all about. This is, I think, one of the best books of the year so far. Nell is a comedy writer who has worked on everything from Murphy Brown to Letterman to The Simpsons. (laughs) Uh, She created Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She's had a a long career here. And she just does a great job of chronicling the everyday sexism in Hollywood, the boys club, everything from when she went in to talk to Joss Whedon about Buffy the Vampire Slayer when she was Mm -hmm. pregnant. And he said, boy, you're really fat, to the time her maybe first day on The Letterman Show when one of the writers said, it's going to happen one day, you know, I'm going to see one of your tampons. He just blurted that out Mm -hmm. and that as if it was just the kind of thing you could say. And I, I think it's really great, you know, every one of her heroes, male heroes, sort of betrayed her in that they were pretty sexist. You know, Letterman, she's pretty critical of, she's pretty critical of Joss Whedon and Gary Shandling, another Mm -hmm. mentor of her. But it's, it's really good. It's really discouraging in some ways, just how much sort of low level everyday harassment, you know, she faced. Well, she talks about one thing that that really struck me is that, you know, she might be on a set with a group of other writers or producers of, of in certain cases, and they go off to lunch and she's not invited. And then they come back having made a decision and she's expected to live with that. And we're not talking about long in the past. This was recent where it's just sort of, well, then why didn't you invite me to lunch? You can't, you know, you make these decisions collaboratively. You don't get to do it that way. And she talks about even, you know, the lengths that she went to ingratiate herself with the men dressing as a guy talking sports wanting to be one of the guys and she is as funny as any of the guys she's also 
written a lot for Barack Obama when he's needed to do comedy at the White House Correspondents Association dinner and other things like that. So I agree with you. I think that one is really something that would be enjoyed by a lot of people. And she does still keep a humorous tone to it, despite some of the heavier stuff that she's dealing with, right? Yeah, you know, she jokes at one point that it could be called just the angry and bitter parts. But (laughs) the truth is, the book is a lot more inspirational than that. And I think a kind of great guide for, you know, younger women on how tough it is. But one of the parts I really liked about the book as well is that as she got older into her 40s, you know, one of the things that kept her career going was a network of women mentors and women executives. There weren't a lot, but there were enough that helped her get work and kept her her afloat. And I, I thought that that was really interesting. And, and she kind uh, of pays it forward now. She's yeah. got a whole bunch of mentees. And of course, one la- you know one thing about Nell that's really interesting is she actually co-wrote Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg. Oh, yeah. So Sheryl Sandberg contributed the introduction to this. So there's a real great dialogue between the two books. You know, it's very lean in for Hollywood in, in some ways. And so she has quietly been, Nell Scoville has been a great voice in the in the Me Too movement, even though she's not necessarily the first name we think of. Right. The first name we do think of, I think, is probably Rose McGowan. And Rose McGowan has a book out this year that is called Brave. Rose McGowan, for anyone who needs a reminder, was an up-and-coming actress in you know, late 90s, early 2000s, I think is about right. And she was somebody who was, you know, she wasn't winning Oscars, but she was in some popular movies and had fans and also on TV as well as the big screen. And she alleges that she had an encounter with Harvey Weinstein at the Sundance Film Festival, I think in 2002, in which she alleges Harvey Weinstein raped her. And then Basically, she the best that she was able to do in those days was to get a settlement from him that it was people were discouraging her from from exposing him in any other way. So she got a settlement for one hundred thousand dollars that came with an NDA that was basically uh, something that kind of kept her quiet and suffering in silence for a long time, even as she continued to deal with Weinstein sometimes in films directed by her boyfriend at one time, Robert Rodriguez and others. So now with the downfall of Weinstein, which she in some ways helped to contribute to, even if she wasn't one of the women who was on the record with the New York Times, she is now speaking out as loudly as anyone. And did you learn anything new from the book that you haven't heard from her public appearances elsewhere? Yeah, I think one of the things we learned, I mean, first off, she goes into real detail about the Weinstein incident, and it's really, it's a really tough read, but it's important. You know, I think one of the things we learned is the damage that that event caused her, and the way it, in which it it haunted her, and the ways in which Hollywood didn't step up and support her, whether it was you know her boyfriends or collaborators or anybody. And your heart just goes out to to Rose for the way she sort of suffered. So I think we really just learned a lot more about the impact of that event on her her life and. The other part about it I really liked is, you know, even before the incident, she had a pretty tough childhood and also she was a struggling young actress in town and just how hard it is for, you know, a struggling young actress and how many people prey on you and how tough it is. And I think, you know, we learned a lot about that. And I don't think a lot of that has changed. Cultures are very hard to change, and that is probably as much the case in Silicon Valley as in Hollywood. And Silicon Valley and the boys club there is the subject of Emily Chang's new book, Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley. This is one that I know you're an admirer of as well. How much does what's going on in Silicon Valley as chronicled by 
Emily Chang remind you of what's going on here? It reminds me a lot. And I really liked this book and I thought it was really illuminating for anybody in Hollywood just because, as you said, Silicon Valley has had its own problems with sexism and its culture. And so Emily really goes into the history of this, how women have been excluded from tech, what's going on, how Silicon Valley has struggled with this. And I think it's a great lesson for you know Hollywood about what's going on in a related industry and how they're dealing with it as as we're trying to deal with it here and figure it out. And so it's both a guide to what to try to do and a guide what not to do. And I just thought that it was you know really illuminating in, in that way. And in some ways, it's easier to think about your own industry when you're looking at what another industry did wrong. And, and the tech industry is analogous to Hollywood in a lot of ways. Let's close by talking about, I guess, what we might call potpourri, just a couple of other really good books that don't fall neatly into any other category. To begin with, I know we're both big fans of the oral history format. There have been some terrific examples of it over the last few years, most notably via James Andrew Miller. He's done the CAA book, the ESPN book, and the SNL book, the two before CAA in partnership with Tom Shales. The newest oral history that has people talking is called All the Pieces Matter, the Inside Story of The Wire, which is, of course, the HBO TV series that helped to usher in the era of prestige peak TV that we're living in now. This book is by Jonathan Abrams. What can you tell us about it? This is great. You know, as you said, every year brings one great oral history. This is this year's great oral history. And even if you're not a Wire fan, I can't believe anybody isn't. (laughs) But even if you're not, this is great about how, you know, TV is made and how it sort of came together. And this is just full of great little detail and fun stories like how Wendell Pearson took Dominic and Dominic West took Michael B. Jordan, who was a young actor on it, to a strip club (laughs) for a character research, uh, down to how Clark Peters bought a house to rent to the other other actors who didn't like to watch TV with him. But there's a lot about, you know, the filming and character development and how David Simon worked. And I just think it's what better way to understand how to make TV than to plumb into the making of what many consider the best show of all time. I just thought that this was great. Yeah. Also in this category is something called Springfield Confidential, Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies from a Lifetime Writing for The Simpsons. Again, a show not only that comes up in Nell Scovel's book, but also here, this book by Mike Reese and Matthew Clickstein. So Reese has been around The Simpsons almost since the very beginning, and I think this book is really great for early Simpsons fans, it's great. The first few years of the show, it's really great. It gets into the feud between Sam Simon and Matt Groening and and gets us to understand why the show was so successful in blending their their two sensibilities. And it goes into how, you know, an episode is made. And it's really one of our the first great sort of Simpson insider books we've had, even though the show has been on for a long time yeah. by, by a creator. I mean, my one disappointment with the book is he touches on the controversy about Apu, mm-hmm. and he's really harsh on the documentary What About Apu, I think unfairly harsh. Mm-hmm. And like a number of Simpsons people, he hasn't really recognized the problems with that character. And I think that's the one big real flaw in the book and the one real disappointment and an otherwise book I actually really enjoyed. And interestingly, I guess probably since the publication of the book, Hank Azaria himself has sort of stepped away from that character a little bit and said that he, he sees the problems with it. That's right. That's right. So let's end with a book that we've previously discussed on this podcast with the author himself. He's someone who 
was a mentor to me at Brandeis University where I took classes with him and also someone who I know you hold in a high regard because we've featured coverage of his previous books in The Hollywood Reporter. His name is Tom Doherty and his newest book is called Show Trial, Hollywood, HUAC, and the Birth of the Blacklist. This is looking back some 70 years, I guess, now at this point, almost exactly, at the Red Scare in Hollywood, now at a time when there's you know, probably you can count the survivors of that era who were affected by it on one hand. It's sort of like the Holocaust. It's becoming something where it's, you know, you have to kind of fight to remind people just how crazy it and dangerous a time it was. What was your take on Tom's take on that period? Well, you're right. It's going from memory to history now and that there are a few survivors. But I think a story like this is more relevant than ever before with our president you know, politicizing Hollywood and attacking it and trying to turn it into an issue and, and not just an issue in the way that, say, Dan Quayle did, but really turn you know, the public against it. And I, I really liked this you know book a lot. And I, I think it's a great, very readable guide to the blacklist and HUAC and the ways in which Washington meddled in, you know, in Hollywood and Hollywood, you know, caved to that. And I think it's something we need to be reminded of all the time of how we need to resist the political pressures by we, I mean, Hollywood needs to resist the political pressures and how important it is and what happens when when we fail, you end up with something like The Blacklist, which is a real stain on the history of filmmaking. Absolutely. Well, this was a great primer for anyone who wants to know what to buy at the bookstore or more likely online at this point. A lot of good options there. And Annie Lewis, thank you for sharing them with us. Thanks for having me. And now for my interview with Tab Hunter. Again, this was recorded at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter on March 10th, 2015, just six months before this podcast debut. Mr. Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. (laughs) So I want to begin by quoting, I believe it's a Frank Sinatra quote. The only thing you owe the public is a good performance, close quote. Do you agree with that? totally agree (laughs) with that, you know. So that being the case, what motivated you to to write and then adapt into a film with Alan Glazer, a Tab Hunter Confidential, this very revealing personal story? Well, what happened was Alan told me that someone was going to be doing a book on me. And I thought, look, get it from the horse's mouth and not from some horse's ass after I'm dead and gone. So it was just that simple. I mean, this was the journey, and I really don't have anything to hide. That's it. And like Geraldine Page once said, either you, if people don't get your message, that's their problem, not yours. That's right. And I really feel, I just felt I I wanted to put it out there because I didn't want someone putting a spin on my life. Sure. Just to begin with, you were born in New York, so what was it that brought you and your part of your family out to the West? Well, my father was very abusive to my mother, and when my grandfather saw how my mother was living, he moved us out to San Francisco and got my mother a job with the Madison Steamship Lines. My mother worked as a nurse on board and put us in private school, and that's how we came out to California. I was two and my brother was three. And then you eventually even prior to having a career in Hollywood, came to L.A., right? Yes, went from San Francisco to Long Beach, Long Beach, Los Angeles. I was out at the stable as a stable boy when I was about 12, and there was a really fantastic person by the name of Dick Clayton. He was a top, top agent in Hollywood for Jimmy Dean, Jane Fonda, Burt Reynolds. I mean, you could just go on and on. Well, Dick was an actor. 
And he used to come out to the stable, and he was doing a photo layout with Dan Blythe at the stable. And I was fascinated with the movies. I loved the movies. I went all the time. And so we started talking, and he started talking about movies. And he was the one who planted the seed. He was the one who got me my first agent. There would be no tab on her if it were not for Dick Clayton. Wow. And it was Dick Clayton, really, that then led you to Henry Wilson, who is an interesting character in the history of Hollywood. I wonder if you can tell, you know, for people who don't know him, who was he and, and what role did he play in your career? Dick introduced me to Henry Wilson. Henry was an agent. He was a Selznick for a long time. He discovered Guy Madison, Rory Calhoun, Rock Hudson, a lot of people. And he was a very good agent, but he was like a, I always refer to him as a as a gay Svengali. <laughs> <laughs> because really, I mean, the vast majority of the people that he worked with were... Were men. But Henry was an interesting man. My first picture he got me was one line in a Joe Losey movie called The Lawless, saying, hi, Fred, and winding up on the cutting room floor. (laughs) (laughs) And did you think that was it? Well, first, before I even ask you that, so Henry Wilson, what's your personal introduction to him and your personal first impressions of him? Was this a guy who was sort of a father figure or a brother figure or somebody who was looking out for you or somebody who you were skeptical about? What kind of a guy was he? Dick Clayton was all of those. Mm -hmm. Whereas Henry Wilson was an agent who just was out to promote the young people that he wanted to promote. And everybody in town wanted to be handled by Henry Wilson. He had a wonderful sense of humor. He was from a good family in the East. He was respected in the industry, but there was a lot of talk behind his back. And the talk behind his back would have involved the fact that I mean, I guess something that you would later encounter as well, that he would try to get involved with his clients? They would say, you know, Henry, Henry's boys, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. But those things were never talked about. That's perfect lead into the question I want to ask you, which is that for, you know, let's say for people under really 40 today, it's hard for them to fathom what the world was like towards gay people, that even just the idea of gay people was not even really known or discussed among a lot of people. Can you set the scene of what, Hollywood was like in terms of the climate for a gay person in Hollywood at the time that you entered the business? Well, if anyone had said the word to me, I'd have gone crazy. But first of all, the word wasn't around. Okay. It wasn't used. I didn't want anybody knowing anything about my personal life because it was none of their damn business. I lived my life and I was happiest when I was out with my horses, you know, out there. I was very uncomfortable But I just had to adjust being a young actor trying to, you know, succeed in the industry. And it was very difficult. Everything seems to be so in your face today. It wasn't at all then. You might hear behind someone's back, someone might say, do you know about blah, 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 blah. I've never liked that kind of talk anyway. And if I can ask, when did you yourself first realize that perhaps you were, quote unquote, different from you know, maybe the majority of other males? Probably when I was a young teenager, I used to go to the movies all the time and, you know, seeing films like The Black Swan with Jerome Power and Marina O'Hara. I mean, how could you not fall in love with whoever was on the screen <laughs> in that total escapism, you know? <laughs> right. Okay, so now another thing that we that brings us, I guess, back to Henry Wilson is how did Arthur Andrew Kelm become... Tab Hunter, and I, I just think it's a fascinating thing that, you know, people today, I guess if you have a weird name, 
or I shouldn't say a weird name, but an unusual name. You know, today, a woman named Lupita Nyong'o is an Oscar-winning big star. <laughs> but Arthur Andrew Kelm could not remain Arthur Andrew Kelm. Well, interesting, because they they love to change names back then. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Kelm, because no one knows that my real name is Kelm. My birth certificate said male Kelm. <laughs> but my mother, the minute she left my father, we grew up with her maiden name, Galeen. So I was Arthur Andrew Galeen. And I was out of the stable working. Finally, when Dick Clayton introduced me to Henry, and after about the second meeting, Henry said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to handle this kid, but we've got to change that name. So he said, we've got to tab you something. And that's how tab came about. <laughs> and I showed horses, hunters and jumpers, so it was Tab Hunter as opposed to Tab Jumper. <laughs> we could have had Tab Jumper here today. That's great. Now, those those first projects after the Joe Losey, you know, fiasco. fiasco. <laughs> so you've got Island of Desire, which leads after a break into Battle Cry for Raoul Walsh. And I just wonder, you know, if Island of Desire gave people a little taste of you and made them really pique their interest, then... I would say probably that Battle Cry really hooked them on you. What was it that sort of happened between those films? Or I guess, you know, even just talk about their significance in your career. Because Island of Desire, was there an immediate change of interest, level of interest in you? There was an immediate reaction to my persona on screen. And I was so green with his new name, not being able to read the new name off of a piece of paper. But it was such an important thing for me. And I was so bad in the film. <laughs> That I couldn't get a job for well over a year, I'm sure it was. I did a couple of little things here and there, but not much. Merv Griffin was the one who told me about a novel of Leon Uris's called Battle Cry. And he was an actor at that time? Merv was an actor. He was what? a singer with Freddie Martin's oh band. Remember gosh. that? <laughs> I know you were too young. <laughs> but Merv said, there's a great role in Battle Cry. You should read it. And I read it, and it reminded me of my brother. Really? And I took nine pages of notes. I went out to Warner Brothers. I did nine screen tests for the role. After the eighth one, they went back to New York and tested Paul Newman. They tested Jimmy Dean. And wow. they came back and said, we still haven't got the guy. We want to do one more with you. Wow. I did one more test. I was sure I blew it. And that was the one that got me the role. Unbelievable. They exercised an option. And that option, would that mean that you are now for seven years under contract to Warner Brothers? Only, only when they exercised the option. Okay. So what happened was Bill Wellman, who, Wild Bill Wellman, was yes. wonderful. He yeah. saw some of the uh, rushes and said, I want that boy for my next film which was Track of the Cat with Robert Mitchum, Teresa Wright, yeah. Beulah Bondi, Diana Lynn. I did that film, and then Warner's thought, well, what the heck, we've got him for Battle Cry, and we've got him for the Mitch picture. Why don't we put him in the sea chase with John Wayne and Lana Turner? <laughs> and they, I exercised the option, and I was so disappointed because I wound up saying, aye, aye, sir, yes, sir, <laughs> no, sir, and nothing else. So in those days, a seven-year contract was still possible. Now, isn't it right that you, James Dean, and Natalie Wood were the last three people under contract to Warner Brothers, I think, right? I believe we were. It was the end of the studio era. These major moguls had to get rid of the theaters they owned all around the country. They were run. They were tight ships run by Harry Cohn, Jack Warner, Daryl Zanuck. You know, those men knew how to make motion <laughs> pictures. <laughs> totally. It was a whole different ballgame. And people like Bob Wagner, you know, Tony Curtis, myself, Janet Lee. we were all young 
young people looking up to the older stars of the industry, like, you know, Dietrich and Bogart and Bergman and so forth. It was a very, very exciting time. And you guys were the last ones to really experience the, the golden age because after the studio system kind of came apart, there was no more being built up and nurtured and whatever by a specific studio because you were a free agent, right? That is so true. I mean, listening to Debbie Reynolds talk about what the, the facilities they had at MGM Studios for singing and dancing and what have you. I mean, it was fantastic. So setting aside all humility for a second, I want you to just try. I know you are not somebody who relished stardom or relishes it or goes necessarily into this, but what was it that made the public fall so in love with with this new guy, Tab Hunter. What was it about you that they went for? There's a word that popped in my mind just now called quality. Maybe I had a quality that people liked. I don't know. It's just, it's something, it's a culmination of a number of things. I don't know. It's like you make a motion picture, you never know if it's going to be a hit. You throw someone up on the screen, you never know if they they register with people or not. But I've always said that movie stars, and there's so few of them around, uh, had... X quality, and I love the word X quality. Mm-hmm. I can't put my hand on it. Or as they would, I guess they said with Clara Bow, it, right? It, the <laughs> it, or she was the it girl, right? Yes, right. Now, talk about what it was like for a guy who was quite private to now suddenly be in the center of this kind of a big buildup from Warner Brothers, the sort that the studio publicity departments did at that time, just to provide some context for listeners and readers, all of a sudden you're in every fan magazine, and there were tons. You've got a nickname. You're the Psy Guy. You're all these different things. He's rolling his eyes. <laughs> I have to say one thing. Yeah. I feel like you said the, the nickname. People love to hang labels on yes, people, yeah. and the first line of my book was, I hate labels. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you so that, that answers that part. But, I mean, even then there's things. I don't know if these things are true, but it's plausible that in 1956 you apparently got 62,000 Valentines. All these different things that would come out of the publicity buildup. And, in fact, was very effective because from 55 to 59 you were, the, I believe, the top grossing star at Warner Brothers. And so the question is, you know, again, for a person that was that private, what's it like to suddenly be thrust in the public eye to that extent? For me, it was very uncomfortable. Uh And my only comfort zone was being able to get out and be with my horses and the few people that I really trusted and wanted to be around. Who were they? Venetia Stevenson, Dick Clayton, of course, because I could trust him completely. Uh All my friends at the barn. I loved all of that. I would play the game, but I was very uncomfortable in it. It was like playing a role. I never mentioned my sexuality to Warner Brothers at all. They never mentioned it to me, thank God, because I would have freaked out probably. Whereas Tony Perkins over at Paramount, Paramount did mention they didn't want him to see me any longer and things like that. Really? You know, it's a whole different ballgame today. People are just blah, 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 right out there. Yeah, anything goes. That's just not my—I wasn't brought up that way. I was brought up by a very strict German mother (laughs) who said, here's what it is. There is yes— and there is no, yeah. and there's no in between. <laughs> you know, I mean, she was very, uh, people were not messing to get, around. Yeah. yeah. Now, quick question about, you know, we mentioned that you, James Dean, and Natalie Wood were sort of the last people at Warner Brothers under the old system. So I've got to ask you about the two of them, because I know you certainly interacted with both. And you tested for Rebel without a cause, right? No, I didn't test so for didn't Rebel. Test. Just no, consider- no, I didn't test for, for Rebel. No, no. They already had Jimmy for Rebel. They wanted me at one point, and then they went back to New York, and Kazan told Jack Warner about it. Yeah. And Dick Clayton was the only one who could talk to Jimmy on the West Coast, because Jimmy wanted nothing to do with anyone in Hollywood. <laughs> and what did you make of him, of Dean? 
Were you guys friends? Did you like him? Here you were entering the scene as somebody really who had not studied acting, right? It was a natural gift for you. He was somebody that I think was a method, you know, this well, new idea. The studio. Of the, right. And so did you find that those different types of actors, were, who, you know, now the method thing was really coming along because of Brando and Dean and Clifton and all that. Did you find that your sort of actor, this, I guess in a lot of ways, just naturally gifted actor, did you get along with the method guys? Well, people wanted real people in real situations. And I do believe that the Italian films of the 60s really kind of made American filmmakers and the public more aware of that. And that was exciting. I was like a sponge because I didn't know, you know, I had to serve my apprenticeship while doing. Yeah. And therefore I respected all these fine actors coming out of New York. Mm -hmm. Jimmy was a wonderful actor. And I used to go to the studio. My friend Thomas Millian was in the actor's studio. I, he went on to Europe and later started, starred with Lucino Visconti in some wow. films in Italy. I mean, so it was fun. Jerry Page was at the studio. So I would go there occasionally because I really enjoyed it. And I worked with a fabulous coach here in California, Jeff Corey, yes. who was brilliant. Please talk about him because he's somebody that's come up. I'm trying to remember right now, I've, I've interviewed a number of people who just really speak very highly of him and what made him good. Well, he made you dig deep. And when you would go deep inside to find more about the character, he'd make you dig deeper. He made you think. He was wonderful. And I loved going to his place for my, you know, when I would have my hour working with him because I'd see people like Shelley Winters and really people that I respected were a lot of fun wow. and very, very talented. And, you know, in the way that people labeled one approach, the method or other things, was there a label for the approach that you worked on with Corey? It all stems from within. Mm -hmm. It all stems cerebral and very, very... It's like a religion you don't talk about. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so now coming to Natalie, actually, it seems like you coming off of Battlecry, she coming off of Rebel, there was some idea that let's pair these two together because, A, you couldn't ask for a better-looking couple, but also, you know, maybe their sparks will fly. What was that like for you, and what was the origin and, and the experience like of being paired both in movies and in private lives as the studios could do at that time, you know, hey, you're going on a date with Natalie Wood to the Oscars, you're going to whatever. What was it like getting sort of forcibly put together with Natalie Wood? I don't really consider it forcibly because I love going out with Natalie. We'd go out to the movies, we'd do this, we'd do that. You know, it's like Debbie Reynolds and I used to go once a week down to the New Follies burlesque show in downtown L.A. <laughs> and she'd whistle and holler and we'd have a great time because we were a bunch of kids enjoying ourselves. Yeah. I just loved going out with Natalie. She was like my kid sister. I met her when we were doing a thing for the March of Dimes into Hunger and Parade. And I always respected her as a, as a wonderful little actress, as a child star. And when we met, uh, we hit it off right away and we saw a great deal of each other. And we did all the things the studio asked because that's your job. Mm -hmm. The studio asks you to do that. That is your job. Do it. And if you don't do it, they'll kick you out and put somebody else in who will do, <laughs> we'll it. do it. Those moguls were fabulous the way they ran a studio. Today, I don't understand there's all these large corporations. I have, right. I have no concept of how these things are run. <laughs> now, out of curiosity, with somebody like Natalie, who you obviously grew to be very close with, did you feel comfortable in confiding in a person like that who might otherwise wonder, you know, why isn't this going anywhere? You know, if, if there's this enjoyment of being around each other, would you feel comfortable telling her about your personal life or your personal preferences? I never mentioned my sexuality to anyone because it was none of their business. Right, right. I'm a very private person, always have been. 
That's just the way I was brought up. Mm-hmm. That was not important. People today, another thing they may have a hard time fathoming, I know, as I learned about it, I did, was that there were, at that time, two chubby, middle-aged women who wore funny hats, who basically gossip for a living and could could kind of, and carried <laughs> huge yeah. Yes, and, and, and they could be very, let's say catty is a nicer version of another word that ends with Y, and they would make some snide remarks about all kinds of things and people and and still, you know, got away with it. And one of the things that, you know, my sense from going through some of the archives and stuff, you'd get little digs from these ladies where it would be something like Hedda, I think, would ask Natalie Wood if Tab Hunter is the sort of guy that she's looking to be with, or somebody would say Natalie Wood and Tab wouldn't, or things like that. You can't really respond to that kind of thing, could you, at that time? No, it's very difficult. And people people say what they want to say. Yeah. And if it's something that's negative, I try to just avoid it. But Hedda was very supportive. Really? And Luella, she was wonderful. I really liked her, too. And let me tell you, they protected those stars at the studios and the studios protected the stars who were under contract and if the press didn't the press was on a blacklist so even though there would be these little snide things you're saying you still were fond of these women well, Luella was a wonderful gal. I mean, she was wonderful. She took a little sip of booze every now and then with Jimmy McHugh's arm there to keep her steady. But she was fabulous. Yeah, I liked her. And she was very good. She was really good at promoting careers. You know, the studio had a wing of publicity. I mean, you'd look at Warner Brothers and that whole one wing was all PR. And they were working constantly for the films that were upcoming. And your job was to promote those films. Now, at if I'm correct, it was only just becoming common for an actor to have a personal publicist on top of the studio publicity department, which I think Joan Crawford may have even started with Henry Rogers, if I remember, because the studios didn't want you to be necessarily looking out for yourself, right? They wanted it in their... They create their own image. That's right. And so were you solely sort of spoken for by the studio publicity department, or did you also have your own representation? I had Dick Clayton, who was my agent, but in those days, agents worked totally different (laughs) than they do today. Agents were personal managers. Dick started the personal management thing in Hollywood, one of the first to do that. But they worked and they promoted you and they worked hand in hand with the studio PR department. And within the studio PR department, would there be one or two people assigned specifically to you or would they just handle film to film? No, no, they would have the overall blanket, like Bill Hendricks, I believe, was at uh, Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And he oversaw all of the PR that was going around there. And then they have all the other things, some for this picture or something. And you'd go out your job, you know. I was never in the spirit of St. Louis. That was Jimmy Stewart. Mm -hmm. But the studio decided, young America must know about, you know, Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So they sent me to 26 cities promoting the spirit of St. Louis. I thought, oh my gosh, we all know the plane landed safely. (laughs) You know, if you've read, if you know a little bit about history. Yeah. Another, just a random thing, because as we've talked about, you know, kind of a big focus of what I do is the Oscar stuff. One of the things I've heard is that during this, you know, period, the golden age, a lot of the studio chiefs would sort of lean on the people that were under contract to them to back the studio product. They'd say, this is our movie this year, or this is our person that we're going for in a category. Did you experience that? My understanding was that like Harry Cohn would literally make people come in and fill out 
ballots in front of him because that was, you know, I guess they called it block voting. Is that something that actually went on to your knowledge? I don't know much about that, but Harry Cohn, you mentioned a name that I think was just incredible. Yeah. So many people did not like him at all. <laughs> I, o- I only met him one time yeah. on loan out from Warner Brothers to Columbia for mm-hmm. Gunman's Walk, which is one of the best films I've done, without a doubt, with Van Heflin. Yeah. I walked in, double doors opened, and there he was getting a manicure and haircut, and he looked up and he said, oh, so you're a tab owner. And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, Bob Wagner wants to do this role. <laughs> well, maybe you should get Bob Wagner yeah, right. to turn and walk out. He said, come back here. He said, what did you think of the script? And I said, Mr. Cohen, I, I didn't like it. I loved it. He said, sit down. I sat down. We talked for 30 minutes. I did the film on Loan Out. Got to use my own horse. It was a wonderful film. Phil Carlson directed it. Mm-hmm. And it was the last film he saw before he passed away. Wow. So I only have the best things to say about him. I mean, and then later, of course, I knew his wife, Joan, very, very, very yes, well. Yes, yes. You talked about the fact that most major publications at the time cooperated with the studios in a way that... I think they had to. <laughs> but, but the big exception, of course, is, and the one that... that almost prided itself on sticking it to the studios was Confidential, which is where the title of your film and documentary, we have to say for listeners, he just mouthed shooting himself in the mouth. And that's because Confidential was was mean. These guys didn't care. They prided themselves on unearthing the skeletons in the closet of, right? And so for people who may not know, just, it was only around for a few years, but how much of a impact did Confidential make on the business, and how did it impact your career? Well, I do think it may have had a major impact. A lot of people were worried about the skeletons in the closet. I made the first issue. Marilyn Monroe was on the cover, so I shared the cover <laughs> with Marilyn. <laughs> That's a good distinction. What happened was Confidential was going to be doing a story on Rock Hudson, and I had left Henry because Dick Clayton became an agent, and I figured, I'm going to have Dick Clayton represent me, period. Mm-hmm. He's family. And because I did that, Henry turned over a story on me to Confidential in place of the story that they were going to do on Rock. I was a nervous wreck, but within two weeks, I had won the audience award as the most popular newcomer in the business. And it was your sense that Jack Warner, you say he never asked you about your sexuality, but to him, was it just... You're making him money, that's all that mattered? Well, I do have a funny story. Yeah. We were, all the press of the world were there taking the photographs, and Jack Warner was there with all of his little chicks, you know, <laughs> what have you, you know, all of his, every year was Papa around there, and proud it could be, and the press, like I said, was shooting, one guy said, smile pretty, Tab, this is for the next issue of Confidential Magazine, and I said, oh, God, and I turned my back on all this press, and Warner, God bless him, turned me back and said, just remember this, Tab. Today's headlines, tomorrow's toilet paper. Uh, so he, you felt he had your back. He was a great character. He wow. really very colorful. That's great. First of all, it speaks to how popular you were at this particular time that you now, without really having a, a professional background in singing, could put out a song, dethrone Elvis at the top of the charts, and Jack Warner's reaction was what? <laughs> well, what happened was Randy Wood of Dot Records, and Natalie and I were on tour, and I was, you know, we were in Chicago with a big DJ, and I was singing one day out on, you know, and he said, hey, did you ever think of recording? And I said, no, but I used to sing in the church choir. I like to sing. He said, I should put you in touch with Randy Wood of Dot Records if you'd like to record. I said, that'd be fun. Randy Wood called me up, presented me with a tune called Young Love. 
I recorded it, and wham, it went to number one in the nation. Well, Jack Warner had a fit. He called me <laughs> in the office, and he said, what the hell are you doing? Uh, he said, we own you for everything. I said, but Mr. Warner, you don't have a recording company. He said, well, we do now. And they started Warner Brothers Records. <laughs> Which is still going today, right? That's I just a big, can't believe that. Oh, my gosh. So that was the beginning of that. Now, how did you, as someone who, because of what we've talked about, confidential and all the things that were going on, the general sense that there's almost people that, that you could not be open about your sexuality, even if you wanted to. You've written about and talked about in the film that you would have a relationship, let's say, with Anthony Perkins, which went on for a few years. How does that even start when you're so constricted by the society and by not being able to be public about things? How do you even begin a relationship? Well, that's interesting. Tony was out here doing Friendly Persuasion with Gary Cooper and Dorothy McGuire. We met at the Chateau Marmont. We became friends and were friends for a number of years. And we both were young men interested in our careers getting ahead. He had Paramount. I had Warner Brothers. And it was a difficult thing to do. We would getting little disguise type things, you know, baseball caps. Now everyone wears them, but no one did then. And you know, wear sunglasses and baseball cap if we go out to a movie or dinner or something. And we dated a lot, you know, we, we double dated a lot. I love going out on dates. I always have all my life. You know, people think just because a person is sexually this way or sexually that way, they think, oh, you live a very one-track mind, or, I mean, one-track life. Right. I don't believe that at all. Mm-hmm. I think the important thing is to share. It's all about contributing to one another. And Tony and I had a very, very good relationship. He was a very fine young actor. He was an aggressive young actor in his career. And I respected him tremendously because he came from the East Coast. And really the only reason that it kind of had an end, in a sense, was the Jimmy Pearsall stuff? That was part of it. That was part of it. And also, people, some they just grow apart. Those things happen yeah. in relationships. I was thrilled, though, that he married Barry and had two wonderful children, you know, and we really wanted him for our film, Lust in the Dust. Yes. He'd have been fabulous. Yes, <laughs> oh, absolutely. This may seem like a silly question, but I, I'm curious. You read about some straight actors make a big fuss over having to do gay love scenes. There were a couple people apparently who turned down Brokeback Mountain because they weren't willing to do it. And, you know, that happened. It's a couple other stories like that I've, I've come across. Does it work the other way as well? Is it a little awkward to be asked to do a love scene with a woman, even if she's, you know, as beautiful as Linda Darnell or Sophia Loren, when you're not interested in them in that way? Or is it still fun? That, to <laughs> me, is a silly question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you've got Sophia Loren in your arm, come on, get with the program. <laughs> and then one last thing about that stuff, and then we'll we'll go on to other stuff, but were any co-stars, male or female, particularly supportive or alternatively particularly, I guess the word would be bigoted? Did you find that anybody was one way or the other, like particularly that stand out when I asked that question? Did anybody come to mind? Well, nobody ever brought it to the fore around me because I would have freaked out completely. But the supportive people, and not talking about my sexuality, but just supportive of me as an actor. Yeah. I have to go number one to Geraldine Page. Really? And then Linda Darnell. Because they were fabulous and they were contributors, and that was important. They were helping someone who was on the road to trying to grow mm-hmm. mentally, physically, and spiritually. One of the things you've laughed about in a number of interviews, and, and I'm wondering if you can diagnose 
what the reason for this was. But you ended up in a lot of different uniforms in, in your movies. You were a soldier, a sailor, a this, a that. What is that about? <laughs> Scott, I'm still waiting for my pension from the government, and knowing the trouble the government's in, I'm not getting one, darling. No, you, you should be collecting nine different pensions, you know, every branch of well, service. Well, the other thing they did is everyone always said, I love doing all those beach movies you made, and I didn't really make a heck of a lot of beach movies. Just one, right? I think one, yeah, yeah. Ride the Wild Surf. Yeah, yeah, isn't that funny? Well, I guess maybe they just conflate in their memory the really handsome Blonde, you know, guys of that era. I don't know what that is. Uh, you told a funny story, actually. Isn't it that true, first of all, that somebody, tr they tried to name you Troy Donahue? Well, actually, Henry did want to call me Troy Donahue. Yes, that was the name he had. He had a list of names he wanted to name people. <laughs> so that was just, that was taken out of the out of the basket out of the hat, probably. When, he came, when he actually came along, whatever his real name was. But you know what was interesting to me was that it sounds like you were particularly seeking a musical opportunity, right? And is that yes. why Jack Warner went out and got Damn Yankees? Or what was the root story there? I do believe that after Young Love became such a big hit, I started doing a lot of the big variety shows, you know, Perry Como, Dinah Shore, I mean, you name it, all of Jimmy Durante, I mean, go on and on, mm -hmm. Pat Boone. Warner thought, whoa, they started the Warner Records, and then he, we had an argument, and I was under suspension at the studio, and when we kissed and made up, <laughs> he, as a gift, bought Damn Yankees for me. Wow. And it was with a complete New York cast, and I was the only outsider. And I was thrilled because it was my first musical. And I loved working with Gwen and Gene Stapleton, Bobby Fosse, really, really good people. As the documentary gets into, I mean, it sounds like... George Abbott, perhaps maybe because he, I don't know if you have a position of whether it was because he's just set in his ways or maybe there was some homophobic tendencies with him, but he was not especially fun to work with, right? I think it could have been a combination of both. Yeah. You know, as we get older, we get more set in our ways. I'm guilty of that also. But yes, he wanted the original Broadway cast. And Jack Warner told him I bought it for Tab, and Tab's going to be doing it. <laughs> I respect George Abbott for what he has contributed as a producer to Broadway, some magnificent shows. But we didn't get along that well only because I found him too restricting for the actor. Yeah. As opposed to allowing you to express yourself a little more. And you did get to work as well with two other people who were great directors or would become great directors in their own right, but were sort of in different capacities on that film, right? Stanley Donnan and Bob Fosse both were involved. Can you, what were they doing there? And how did you like working with them? <laughs> Stanley was very quiet. He was sort of the, the Hollywood blueprint for George Abbott, I would say. Mm -hmm. Stanley Donnan was a wonderful director, such quality. And I love the word quality. Stanley was definitely there. And Bob, he was just this wonderful skinny kid with a cigarette <laughs> hanging in the middle of his mouth with a slumped shoulder who was always doing creative little dance steps and what a contributor he was. I said, Bobby, I can't dance. I don't know why. What am I going to do? He said, you'll be fine, Dad. You'll be fine. He gave you great confidence. And did you, by the end of, you know, when you were actually doing it, you did you feel that confidence? Did you feel comfortable doing that, some of the more intricate stuff that the movie required? It wasn't that difficult because he made it, presented it to me in a very palatable way. Yeah. How and why did, did your time at Warner Brothers come to an end? Because that... In the documentary, you call it career suicide. And I why choose to leave Eden in a way, as some people would, would say? It's a very good question. It was the end of the Hollywood era. Television has, had come in so, so big, so powerful. 
Hollywood was changing. They were getting more European-type films, but they were fewer of them around. The days of the contracts were gone, and I wanted to do other films. I wanted to do some of the products that I'd gone on interviews for but didn't get, that, or the studio didn't loan me out for. Finally, I just thought maybe my opportunity would be better if I weren't under contract and I could freelance. And, you know, not the wisest decision. How quickly did you realize that it was it was problematic to not be with a major studio anymore? Probably a few months afterwards. Mm-hmm. I got my television series after that, which was a dreadful series. It started out being a wonderful idea that Dick Clayton found when Stanley Shapiro was the writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a wonderful project. But then it just got diluted and watered down till it was just a piece of milk toast. It was terrible. <laughs> oh, and we were on opposite Sunday night, opposite the Ed Sullivan show. Now you know no one's going to watch <laughs> you. <laughs> That's probably not uh, not the greatest <laughs> time slot. Yeah. So I do think, though, that I guess if one positive thing in the immediate years from that came of of not being at the studio was that you got to really you, there were several TV parts that really offered you more of a opportunity to show your chops than a lot of movie roles ever did wouldn't you say I think the TV roles came along while I was still at Warner Brothers. Oh, really? Okay. With live television. And the days of live TV were the best. Please talk about that. Without that... a doubt, the most frightening yeah. time ever. Yeah. Because when those two red dots went on <laughs> and you knew the gazillion people were going to be watching, it was hard to just forget that and do your job. But there were great writers. And look at the directors that came out of live TV. Sidney Lamette, John Frankenheimer, Arthur Penn. I mean, just to mention three right off the top of my head, they're brilliant. There's some great histories of the live TV era, which I'm fascinated by because to me it seems more like film theater than film. Exactly. And it was the worst ingredients of motion pictures and theater rolled into one. The reason is in a film you can say, oh, God, I really screwed that up. Can we do another take of that, please? Or in a play you can say, oh. Where was I tonight? Thank God for tomorrow night's performance. <laughs> but live TV, the dots go on and you're on. So you better, you have to be good. And so those directors, I think you named the three that people think were the best of the live they were TV era. And you worked with each of them, right? Oh, yes. And can I ask you, even if it's just one thought about each of them, what made them so good to work with? Those three guys, Penn, Frankenheimer, and Lamette. They tapped into you. And that was wonderful. Did you almost thrive on the pressure that came with live TV? I hated it, but you could trust them, and that's what was so wonderful. Right, right. You know? And and some of the, I mean, the Playhouse ninety. That's is that where you met Geraldine Fitzgerald on the Playhouse? Geraldine Page and I met. There. I'm sorry, Geraldine Page. I she mean, yeah. flew out from New York and was staying at the Chateau. I picked her up. I taught her to drive my car right there at CBS, right there in the parking lot. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then just in terms of you know, there's a period of of years when. People may not realize, you know, like uh, most careers are going to have their soaring years, and then there's going to be drier years. And you talk very honestly about the fact there were some tough years after for you when, you know, you would go to Europe and, and do some Westerns. You would do dinner theater. It actually got to the point where you bought an ad in Variety sort of saying, guys, I'm still here, right? I bought the ad. I, I thought of... Betty Davis had done that years and years <laughs> prior to my doing it. Right. She was she was a gutsy dame. I liked her. (laughs) But I thought, you know, I really want to work. Any suggestions? And I took the ad out. 
and the, any suggestions? And, you know, you got response from the press. Yeah, get lost. You know, things <laughs> like that. I never respected I never liked the press. Really? Never did. Very few people in the press that I did like. Except Tata and Luella. Well, I liked them, yeah, from yeah. because I knew where they were coming from. Right, right. I, I think that's important. Yeah. I don't like hidden agendas. I just think it's important to just lay it out there yeah, and, you know, that's very, very important because people can be too hurtful to one another. Yeah. I have heard you say that there's only one person that you would consider acting for again. I don't know if this is correct, but it was John Waters, who a lot of people were very surprised to see you working with not only with John Waters, but should we say, I think multiple times with, with John Waters' muse, Divine. Divine. <laughs> and and how was that first pitch to you? Because I think even John Waters said he never thought you would go for it. I was doing a play in Indianapolis, and uh, the phone rang, and it was John Waters. And he said, hello, my name is John Waters. I don't know if you know me. I said, no, I'm a big fan. <laughs> he said, really? He said, well, you know, I've got a script that I'd love you to read with Divine. And luckily, I had finished, I was finishing the play in about a week, and I had two weeks off before I was going to do another engagement. So I said, well, send it to me. And I read it, and I told him, I said, that's fine. He said, wait a minute, how would you feel about kissing a 300-pound transvestite? I said, well, I'm sure I've kissed a hell of a lot worse. <laughs> That's terrific. And John was great. He was just terrific. He was like, like eight with that little Adolf Manjou mustache. Yeah, right, right. You know, he was, you know, he was wonderful. He, I think he borrowed it from Jack Warner. You know? <laughs> and you had a lot of fun with working with him. I love doing it. And then, of course, I came back and right. Hollywood. The, you know, I mean, they called me up at Screen Actors Guild. I don't know if we should talk about this. And they said. <laughs> You were breaking all the rules of so forth of the hours of this and that. And I said, no, we'd stop for dinner at 6 o'clock. I mean, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, cold pizza, <laughs> sleeping on the floor. It was, But it was a, one of the best experiences I've ever had making wow. a film. Wow, that's quite a and, and of all the leading ladies I've had, I say, I always say, and Divine was one of my favorite leading ladies. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no offense, Linda Darnell, but this was, <laughs> Divine was pretty. So the last few questions I'd like to focus on your life today because millions and millions of people have, have followed your career and been admirers. And so I guess to begin with, can you set the scene of what your life is like today? It's very simple. And I think that's what I strive for. I don't care about being in the public eye. Been there, done that. Thank you all very much <laughs> for those who made that possible. I have a wonderful life. My friend Alan and I have known each other 30 some years get up in the morning and take the dogs to the beach with our friend Annie, come home, fix breakfast. I go out to see my horse, who's due to have a baby tomorrow. Wow. wow. <laughs> I was gonna and it's such an importance, you know, I try to th keep it uncomplicated. Yeah. And every day is a thank you day. That's the most important thing. Because you've had some health scares, but not recently. I've had a lot of health yeah. scares, yes. But, you know, when we're young, we live in a certain area. And as we get older, we hopefully elevate our thinking. And what we learn, no one's ever going to take away from us. So let's put it on a good path. And I, I'm i trying to think in the right path. Now, I want to follow up about Alan because I am looking at him here as well in our studio. And Alan, terrific filmmaker in his own right. And here we are. What was it like for you guys to work together on this project about certainly your life before each other, but also together now? I mean, what did you make of the experience of it? Well, Alan worked on it for, I would say, close to six years. Wow. I knew he wanted to do this based on the book. He was the one who got me to do the book. His focus is amazing, and he knows the business like no one. 
which is incredible. I mean, he's collected all the archival things for years. I'm just so proud of the direction he's taken this because this gives you a blueprint of what my life was, the younger years, the Hollywood years, and the golden years. <laughs> I have to just say, I said this to you before we went on the air, but I say this to anyone who's thinking about going to this movie, if you love older movies, you're going to love this because it gives you so much great stuff about it. And if you don't necessarily love older movies yet or you're a young person and you haven't really experienced them, this is going to pique your interest because the quality of the archival material that Alan came up with is fantastic. And the interviews with you and also with the you know some of the other survivors of this era really bring it to life in a way that not too many other things have. I mean, the archival stuff for you, what was it like to watch this this movie? Well, I saw it uh, a few weeks ago when we added the music on a big screen, and it was very touching. I really like where it's going because it's the journey, and it's all about the journey. In life, we have to be contributors. It's very, very important. And I look up there, and I think, you know, I, I, I think I've contributed, and, and I certainly know that Alan has contributed to make it a very, very good, not just story, but that is the journey. And I'm so proud of him for having done that because there are a lot of people in the industry that just don't have direction. And they're supposed to be really good directors. <laughs> you know, the conductor of the symphony is major. You better know your score <laughs> and when to accentuate the positive. Yeah, right, absolutely. And eliminate the negative and, you know, latch on to the affirmative. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Now, does any part of you... When you look around and see what it's like today, does any part of you wish that you had become a star today as opposed to when you did? I mean, on the one hand, people today can be very open about their their sexuality. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem to have hurt the careers of Ellen DeGeneres or Neil Patrick Harris or a number of people. On the other hand, stars today can't, you know, if you were hounded then, I, I think that you look at today, these guys can't, you, some of the, the top stars, the equivalent of, of what you were in the 50s, can't leave their house without being trailed by paparazzi and all disgusting. this stuff. So when factoring, weighing both of these things, how do you answer that question? Would you change it or are you happy with that I one? I want no part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking at this now saying yeah. this is really nice that people are ex interested in what's happening. Right. And I'm and I'm very thankful for that. But, you know, get me back home, see my mayor with the baby, see the baby's okay. You know, I love doing it while I'm doing it. It's all part of the process of the job of the work. It's all part of that. But even the freedom to sort of be who you are without having to worry about anybody else, does that hold a certain appeal to you? I would think, personally, I would envy some of these guys that get to just let it all out there. I think I respect the people for yeah. making that choice. Yeah. You know, we have this wonderful gift, free will, and the <laughs> number one thing under free will is choice. Make the good choices. Mm -hmm. If that choice works for you, fine. Right. If it does not work for you, then find a choice that does work for you. I guess one other thing just about the current climate of the, of not specifically even Hollywood, but just the, the United States today where I think we are either just about to pass or we have already passed a majority of the states in, in America today. Gay marriage is, is available in the majority of states. It's becoming so much more accepted. And, and just the idea, I think, of the way the public and just your average Joe feels about gay people. It's not, the stigma seems to be going, if not gone. Obviously, there's still room for, for growth. When you look at America today, how do you feel? Are you, are you 
happy with where things are? Are you proud of where it's going? Or the way that gay people are treated in the world today, how do you feel? I think love is between two people. Mm-hmm. And that concerns them. And I wish them all the love in the world. And God bless them. Go on your road. Mm-hmm. Do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. Too many people are too quick to condemn. And I'm against that. Yeah. And as far as marriage for me... I keep proposing, but I never, I get turned down all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't imagine that that's true. (laughs) Finally, last question. Many years from now, when all of us are are gone and people are studying these films and the history books and coming to watch Tab Hunter Confidential on their Netflix or whatever version exists at that time, how would you like people to remember Tab Hunter? Gosh, I have no idea. I just, I really don't know. I just, if they do remember you, fine. If they don't. That's their prerogative. Just, I think we have to be more positive in this world. And I want people to be more positive and loving. And I'm very grateful for the for this road that I've been on. It's been a good one. And you wouldn't. Sounds been like a tough you, one at times, too. I was going to say, it sounds like you wouldn't really change very much at all. I mean, people want too much. I think we should concern ourselves with our needs and not our wants. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. It's such a treat to meet you and Alan, and I just can't encourage people enough to check out Tab Hunter Confidential, and so thank you Oh, Scott, much. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I love it. <laughs> Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.